Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, hello. Thanks for coming. 
This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am Liv, your host, the ranty one who likes to curse. Honestly, that I have made it a career to swear excessively while talking about Greek myths is truly a dream come true. Well, 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 we are back again with the story of Iphigenia. I'm really loving telling the story behind this play. There's just so much there, and it's just so fascinating to look at what changes are made by playwrights, what they were trying to do in their take on the classic stories, who they're trying to make you sympathize with. Like Agamemnon, it seemed at the beginning that we were supposed to actually sympathize with that utter shithead. And Lord, do you all remember how thrown I was by that? But now, I don't quite think so. Euripides is absolutely adding more layers to Agamemnon, more nuance, but ultimately I do think we're still supposed to see him as the shit warmonger who kills his daughter for a bit of wind. But, well, as always, I'm getting ahead of myself. First, let's talk about the first ever live-streamed event that I'm going to do for this podcast, because that's pretty fucking cool. Next month, September 12th at 12pm Eastern, I will be live-streaming a moment via Moment House in Athens with Ancient History Fangirl. There's just so much going on there. So much awesome. Jen and Jenny of Ancient History Fangirl and I will be meeting up in Athens. We're meeting in person for the first time. We've become such good friends over this wild year and a half. And we're putting on a live stream of our favorite Patreon series, Drunk Myths. Granted, we're not getting too drunk because this shit is live. But we will have some Greek wine in hand to tell the myths of Athens' mythological founding and those early snake people. There's a lot of good shit in this myth, and you can listen to us ramble on about it with a view of the Parthenon in the distance. That's right. A view of the fucking Parthenon, you amazing nerds. Tickets start at just $15 with the option for a smaller, more interactive Q&A session after the fact, where we will both be at our tipsiest and ready to answer any and all of your burning questions about mythology, our podcasts, Athens itself. It's going to be seriously fun. Go to momenthouse.com slash let's talk about myths baby for tickets or click the link in this episode's description. That is momenthouse.com slash let's talk about myths baby or the link in this episode's description. I hope to see you all there. With that exciting news out of the way, back to Euripides' Iphigenia at Aulis. So where did we last leave these fucking asshole brothers in Aulis? Well, finally, the woman whose name makes up the title of this play has arrived. Agamemnon's poor, tragic daughter, Iphigenia, has finally arrived in Aulis with her mother, Clytemnestra, expecting to marry Achilles, the best of the Greeks. But before that... Well, Agamemnon first told us how he was forced into sacrificing Iphigenia to Artemis in order to get the winds necessary to set sail for Troy. He's presenting himself as the hero, changing his mind and trying to save his daughter's life at the last minute, though his attempts have so far failed. Iphigenia reached Aulis. Meanwhile, Menelaus wants us to believe that Agamemnon was always obsessed with leading the Greeks to Troy to wage war in Helen's name, that Agamemnon leapt at the chance to sacrifice his daughter in order to make this happen. The brothers have fought, bickered endlessly, about who really is the worst human being. Both are vying for the title, though they don't see it that way. Both are utter shit, and both want to make it seem as though they're righteous. 
Menelaus yells about Agamemnon changing his mind, how good leaders don't do that. Agamemnon's yelling about Helen and Menelaus and why in the fuck they're going to Troy for that woman. The choicest quote for this is, Your cause will not prosper at my expense, so you can get back the world's worst wife. A lot of blame being lobbed at Helen, too, for something we know nothing about. Menelaus was surely a shit husband before Paris arrived, so whether or not she went willingly, mm, I'm always on the side of Helen. Once Agamemnon has finished speaking about this, making his points to Menelaus, and putting his foot down that, no, he will absolutely not murder Iphigenia for the wind, the chorus speaks. Quote, These words are different from what he said, but I like them better to spare the children's lives. The chorus in Greek tragedies are just so fascinating. The roles they play, sometimes serious, sometimes comedic, often a bit of both. Here they're clearly commenting on the actions of Agamemnon, and like I was saying last episode, the way he presents himself versus his true actions. But either way, this chorus of women from Calchas can definitely appreciate the one bit, the not-sacrificing-a-young-woman bit. Better yet, though, Menelaus' follow-up line to this is simply... Quote, I have no friends. <laughs> and that, give or take a few more bickering back and forths, is when the messenger arrived to announce the arrival of Iphigenia and Clytemnestra, along with Agamemnon and Clytemnestra's infant son, Orestes. Electra, it seems, is lucky enough to be left at home in Mycenae. Agamemnon's much-too-late-in-the-game plan failed, the letter telling them to return to Argos to Mycenae as fast as they could never reached them, and here they are, ready for a wedding that was never going to happen. This is episode 139. Enter Clytemnestra, taking no shit. The messenger speaks to Agamemnon, explaining that Clytemnestra and Iphigenia have arrived, that they're just refreshing themselves at a nearby spring. It's a long-ass journey to Aulis from Mycenae. The women are tired. While they're doing that, the messenger tells Agamemnon how quickly the news of their arrival has spread through the camp. Everyone is wondering, he says, why is Iphigenia here? Did Agamemnon miss his daughter? Is she there to be initiated to Artemis, the queen of Aulis? Is there to be a wedding? The Greeks have so many questions to wonder about, though none are the truth. Because no one would assume she's there to be sacrificed, because frankly, the ancient Greeks weren't particularly big into sacrificing humans. Iphigenia is almost a one-off. Again, I'm spoiling my own episode, as if you don't know already. To the messenger, Agamemnon says only, quote, Whatever comes next, it will be well. Dude is not particularly subtle with his schemes. The messenger leaves, and Agamemnon laments his shit decision-making. It's all about him, too. Fate has outsmarted me, he says. Quote, I have slipped into necessity's noose. He talks about how he wishes they weren't so highly born, that none of this would be happening. Of course, who really believes him? I don't believe for shit that Agamemnon would rather be low-born and lack power. 
honestly not sure who he's convincing here, but he goes on and on, all woe is me. Truly, the planned sacrifice of his own daughter, Agamemnon believes, is really just all about him. Quote, I have come into the greatest tragedy of my life. It comes to this. What will I say to my wife? How will I welcome her? With what expression on my face? On top of the miseries I already have, she has ruined me by coming here uninvited. On top of the miseries I already have, she has ruined me by coming here uninvited. Honestly. Honestly. How? (laughs) How does one make their choice to sacrifice their own daughter about their misery? Only Agamemnon, I swear. To his credit, towards the end of his speech, he does consider how Iphigenia will react, how she's feeling about the fucking mess he's gotten his family into. Quote, How sorry I feel for her. She will beg me. Father, are you going to kill me? I wish you and those you love would make a marriage like this. And with this, finally, Menelaus chimes in with some rational talk. He's changed his mind, he says, having witnessed all this, his brother's pain at the thought of sacrificing Iphigenia. He finally concedes that, hey, maybe it isn't totally fair to ask all of this from not only his brother, but all of the fucking Greeks, for a woman who, he at least believes, doesn't want him anyway. It's all for Helen. And at this moment, Menelaus finally gets the hint that maybe that isn't entirely fair or reasonable, and that perhaps it's fucking wild to expect your brother to sacrifice his daughter and and for an entire country to go to war because your wife left you? Like, maybe that's a lot to ask? <sighs> ha ha ha, as if this makes a difference in the end. Menelaus really is quite kind about it, though, quite reasonable in this moment. He explains all of his points and says that he doesn't want Agamemnon to sacrifice Iphigenia, because why should his daughter die while Menelaus's gets to live? After this, the chorus remarks on Menelaus's kindness, his reasoned speech. They say that the men's ancestors would be proud, that Tantalus, the son of Zeus, their forebear, would be proud. Seriously curious if Euripides is making a point with this, or whether it's just, like, a reference to lineage, like so many bits in Greek myth. Like, Tantalus was the son of Zeus, so maybe they're proud of that. But he also started the curses that would plague their entire family for generations and generations. So is he someone to emulate? He ate his own son. This family is cursed as fuck, and also generally just a bit shit. Even though Menelaus has just given Agamemnon an out, he's explicitly said that he doesn't want Agamemnon to kill Iphigenia all for Menelaus' marriage. All for that damned Helen who everyone slanders in this play pretty excessively. Even though Agamemnon doesn't need to sacrifice his daughter now, he's got an awful lot of reasons for why, no, he does still need to sacrifice his daughter. Agamemnon decides he still has to sacrifice Iphigenia not because of Helen, not because of the impending war with Troy, but because of the Greeks amassed there at Aulis, and the inevitability that they will learn of the prophecy, the requirement that he sacrifice his daughter. He says that Calchas, their prophet, will surely tell them. To which Menelaus offers to simply have Calchas killed, 
but that's not helpful. They determine because he's not the only one who knows of the prophecy. A certain main man of mine, Odysseus, he knows too. They determine that it's Odysseus's knowledge of the prophecy that will be their downfall. That if Agamemnon takes it back, doesn't sacrifice Iphigenia, then Odysseus will tell the Greeks all about it. That Odysseus will have them kill Agamemnon, have them hunt him to the very walls of Mycenae. Frankly, this doesn't sound like Odysseus to me. I mean, he didn't even want to go to the damn war in the first place. I would imagine he'd just pack it all in and go home to his wife and infant son if they weren't able to sail to Troy. He'd just live happily ever after. But Euripides theorizes otherwise. It's Odysseus that will be the cause of all their trouble. If Agamemnon backs down, if he chooses not to sacrifice his oldest daughter for a bit of good wind. Agamemnon laments a bit more, a bit more, woe is me, woe is me, what a hard life Agamemnon has. Quote, this is the turmoil I suffer in my misery. What a dilemma I am in by the gods' will. What a dipshit, honestly. He finishes by asking Menelaus to help him by distracting Clytemnestra, ensuring she doesn't find out about his plan, that then he could get Iphigenia away from her. He hadn't predicted Clytemnestra coming along with their daughter. He hadn't expected to have to deal with his wife there. But Clytemnestra believed she was attending her daughter's wedding. Of course she went. Of course she accompanied her daughter all that way, on such a long journey, to the place where she would get to marry the best of the Greeks. Achilles himself. So the two brothers, the sons of Atreus, the men cursed by the long line of curses, the Tantalid curse and the curse of the Pelopidae and the curse on the house of Atreus, they head inside, leaving the chorus of women to mull over what they've just witnessed, what a show is being put on for them there in Aulis. They sing about honor, about purity, specifically about being pure for marriage, keeping away from the arrows of Eros and all the trouble they cause. It's over the top, honestly, and it's meant to demonize Helen in the most specific of ways. She is impure, Iphigenia is pure. They are at odds here, and that's kind of the point. The chorus finishes their song, preparing us, finally, finally, to actually see Clytemnestra and Iphigenia on stage for the first time, by describing that fated arrival of Paris in Sparta, of the moment he locked eyes with Helen, of the love they both felt in that moment. The chorus sings of their love and their passions, and that, quote, from this, strife brings more strife, an angry Greece with spears, with ships, comes against Troy's fortress. Then, with the women finally arriving on the stage, the chorus sings of them, too. They sing of Iphigenia's beauty, they sing of the importance of Clytemnestra, and they welcome them, helping them from their chariot, greeting the women. They want them to feel comfortable there in Aulis. And it works, because Clytemnestra's very first lines in this play are telling. Quote, Your kind and gentle words are a happy omen. Imagine watching that scene live, being presented to you at the City Dionysia, this great festival where the playwrights would compete with their plays. It's being shown after Euripides' death, so there's something special about this one. And moment by moment, you're being thrown something new. Agamemnon is one to be pitied at first. 
Then he's blaming all those around him, so who to believe? The audience knows Agamemnon. They know Clytemnestra. They know the story, know what's going to happen to Iphigenia and how the war with Troy will go down. They've already seen Aeschylus' trilogy. They've seen Clytemnestra and Aegisthus murder the absolute fuck out of Agamemnon for what he is going to do to Iphigenia. And yet, now in this play, here is Clytemnestra walking on stage for the first time, talking of good omens. She's excited and happy. She's looking forward to watching her daughter get married, and not just to anyone, but to Achilles. Orestes is sleeping, and she wants to wake him. She wants even the tiny baby to witness his sister's wedding. Quote, My little prince, your sister is marrying a prince, the godlike son of Nereus' daughter. <sighs> Meanwhile, Iphigenia's first line... Yeah, it's making the same dramatic point as Clytemnestra's. It's pulling at the same heartstrings of the audience, reminding them not only what's in store, but who these people were, reminding them that Iphigenia and Clytemnestra were loving family, were innocent women brought there under false pretenses. Iphigenia's first line is, quote, Oh, mother, don't be angry with me if I run from your side and throw my arms around father. Again, I say, <sighs> Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. 
if you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When Iphigenia reunites with her father, Agamemnon, she's full of affection and emotions. She's loving and kind. She's missed her father and she wants to show it. Agamemnon, for his part, seems a bit torn. He's missed her too. He appears loving in his way. He makes a point of being unsure whether or not it was a good idea to bring her there in the first place. But Euripides is pulling on every heartstring he can find. He's making the whole thing as dramatic and emotional as possible, really playing on the fact that everyone knows what is going to happen. Iphigenia is reminded by her mother that she's always been the child who loves her father most. She tells him just how happy she is to see him. She is naive and impressionable, and she just simply loves her father. It's just that her father is an absolute fucking monster! Iphigenia tells Agamemnon, Oh, you look sad and worried, but a second ago you were glad to see me. He's like, Oh, I've got a lot of concerns, you know, I'm a commander. She tells him to put aside his worries, to be there with his daughter instead. Eventually she's like, Oh, are are there tears in your eyes? He tells her, They're going to be apart for a long time. No explanation, no details, just ominous words. I don't understand, she tells him. He says, quote, When you make sense, you make me sadder. Finally, he tells her he can't hold back, that she's a good girl. She tells him to stay home from the war, assuming that his worries are about the war, that he'll miss her when he's away at war. Iphigenia adds, quote, This war and Menelaus' woes, I wish they would all go away. Honestly, the lead-up, the drama, the foreshadowing... Here they transition. They speak of Troy, where it is. They speak of Paris, wishing he had never lived. Iphigenia loves her father so much, she wishes she could go there with him, to which he replies, telling her that she has her own trip to go on, and that there she will forget her father. I just imagine being in this audience. What a fucking shit! Like, I guess I don't have a solution for Agamemnon here, but still, I think he's handling it pretty fucking poorly. 
My gods, don't just hint at horror. It continues, too, with Iphigenia asking about this mysterious trip he's mentioned. Will her mother be there, too? He says no, she's going alone. She asks if he's sending her to live in another home. To which he replies that girls shouldn't know these things. And finally, quote, There is a sacrifice I have to make here first. There is a sacrifice I have to make here first. And just for good measure, Agamemnon assures Iphigenia that she won't miss it, that she'll be standing right there with him for the sacrifice. With Iphigenia inside, where Agamemnon says girls are supposed to be, he's left to speak with his wife. He didn't expect Clytemnestra there, didn't plan for how he would sacrifice their daughter under the watchful mother's eye. He is simply not prepared for this. But he can't show her, so instead he apologizes for having made this decision without her and for being in such a sad mood, telling her that he's only sad to be losing his daughter to a husband. Clytemnestra, while feeling a bit left out, isn't angry with Agamemnon. She believes Iphigenia is making a good match. She's going to miss her daughter, but she's happy that she's marrying a good man with a strong lineage. It's all about who your parents are, and their parents, and their parents. Clytemnestra has Agamemnon give her the rundown of everything. She's heard of Achilles, but she wants to know more about his family. So, he explains. He tells Clytemnestra first about a man named Aesopus, who had a daughter named Aegina. Aegina, as you may recall from my earliest episodes about the horrors of Zeus, was, well, abducted and assaulted by Zeus. With Zeus, she had a son, Iacus. And Iacus also had a son, Peleus. Peleus married Thetis, though not by her choice. Euripides doesn't go into this, but Thetis married Peleus not because she wanted to. She was a powerful sea nymph, a daughter of Nereus, the old man of the sea. She was head Nereid, damn it. But Zeus learned that her child would be powerful as fuck, so to offset this and to avoid any threat to himself, he had her marry a mortal, Peleus. Agamemnon goes on to recall that Achilles was raised not by Peleus or Thetis, but by the centaur Chiron on Mount Pelion. Clytemnestra is happy to hear all this, happy to hear that Achilles has good parents, that he was raised by the famed centaur Chiron, raised by the centaur to avoid learning the horrors of humanity. She's happy to hear that he's from Phythia, and wonders whether that is where he will bring Iphigenia when they're married. They speak more of the wedding plans, with Clytemnestra asking Agamemnon a collection of questions we can only assume he wasn't prepared for. He has answers, though, about the wedding ceremony and the celebration, about the women's celebration that will be separate, and where he has planned it to take place. Agamemnon has all the answers, and Clytemnestra is convinced. But then, she didn't arrive there questioning him. She trusts her husband, because why would he lie about marrying their daughter to Achilles? From here, though, Agamemnon begins to fuck with the calm that's descended with the arrival of his wife and daughter. He tries to, subtly at first, suggest that Clytemnestra isn't needed there, that she should head back to Argos to watch over their two other daughters, Electra and Chrysothemis. 
Unsurprisingly, Clytemnestra thinks this is a stupid fucking idea, and no, she will absolutely not leave Aulis for Mycenae, leaving behind her daughter to get married without her there. General motherly affection aside, it goes against their set traditions. The mother is meant to accompany the daughter, she's meant to hold the wedding torch, Clytemnestra says. Agamemnon says he'll do it instead, but this is just over the top for Clytemnestra. It is against their customs, and why in the fuck is he trying to get rid of her? Agamemnon tries to guilt her, suggesting that it's not right that Electra and Chrysothemis are left alone. But Clytemnestra isn't stupid. She tells him that they're very well protected back at home. And then, well, Agamemnon resorts to straight patriarchy. He tells Clytemnestra simply, obey me. Huge fucking mistake, asshole. Clytemnestra's response is, quote, no. In the name of the goddess queen of Aulis, you go. Fucking badass, Clytemnestra. She reminds her husband that it's her job to prepare their daughter for the wedding not his. And with that final word on the matter, Clytemnestra goes inside the building where Iphigenia awaits her to begin preparing her daughter for the wedding. And Agamemnon knows he's fucked. From here, he laments just about everything, once again telling the audience just how hard he has it, how tough it is to be Agamemnon, his poor life, wah, wah, wah. Quote, a wise man should keep in his home a useful and good wife, or not keep one at all. The chorus sings of the plans for Troy, what kind of city the Greeks will set sail towards. They sing of the river Simois, of the armies of the Greeks. They sing of Ilium, of Troy, of Apollo's plains. They sing of Cassandra and her golden locks, her connections to Apollo. Quote, when the god breathes on her the prophetic compulsion. Not the best description of Apollo's influence on Cassandra or how the poor woman got into the situation. She was, of course, punished by Apollo for refusing his advances. The women of the chorus sing of the Trojans standing at the walls of Troy, watching as the Greeks approach. They sing of Ares, the god of war, and Helen, the woman this is all about. The woman they want to claim from Priam, the king of Troy, Paris's father. They sing also of the horrors of the war that are sure to come. Of course, at this point, Euripides has written not only the Trojan women, which I've covered on the podcast, but also Helen and Hecuba and Andromache. Euripides is well versed in the horrors of that particular war and what's coming to those people of Troy, particularly those women of Troy. So this chorus sings of them, too, of their tears as they realize their fates are tied to these Greeks and their war. And then, quite fittingly, quite powerfully, quite emotionally, Achilles walks on stage. The man who will be the cause of so, so much of the horror the women of Troy are going to face. That isn't unintentional. Both Euripides and the audience would have known the full and horrible story of the Trojan War. Not just the Iliad, but all the other epics that surrounded it and the plays written after. They know Achilles well. 
he may be considered the best of the Greeks when this play is taking place, and even still revered for his role in the war, but everyone knows of the horrific things he did in that same war. Achilles enters with a bang and a fucking half. He enters over the top, intense, obnoxious, entitled, and every other thing you can imagine for Achilles. He enters calling to whoever is around, the chorus, I guess, but it feels more as though he's addressing everyone and no one, because he's Achilles, so he can. He asks where Agamemnon is, that he be told that Achilles is there waiting for him. He doesn't wait for a response, though. Instead, he goes on a tirade about the wait at Aulis. Quote, Listen to me, not all of us linger here equally. What a fucking sentence. He goes on, though, talking of the Greeks' empty homes while they sit idly on the beach waiting for their military adventure. Quote, Like anyone else who wants to speak for himself, I have the right to voice my grievance. This Achilles, possibly more than any of the others, is entitled as fuck. He is so much. And that so much is so much obnoxious. As Ash, who helped me with these detailed notes on this play, says about Achilles moving straight to his personal grievances in this moment. Strap in, because this is a running theme. Ah, Achilles. Best of the Greeks? Oh, nerds, thank you as always for listening. Now, did I expect this play would end up being three and a bit, stay tuned, parts? No, definitely not. But then, that's the fun of Euripides, isn't it? I fucking love him, and he writes such interesting plays, such interesting takes on famous moments. He's giving us so much here that yes, it will be three parts and a bit, because why not? I make the rules and I love Euripides. Thank you again to Ash Strain, who helped me immensely with this episode. She provided me with some epic notes, incredible detail, and thorough interpretations of the tragedy. Between their incredible work and another translation I'm reading simultaneously with these notes, I'm having real fun with this episode arc. So next week, more Achilles, more deeply, deeply obnoxious and entitled Achilles. And thankfully, lots and lots more Clytemnestra and Iphigenia. Before I leave you all, though, a reminder about the very first livestream moment that I'm doing with my friends Jenny and Jen of Ancient History Fangirl and Moment House. It's going to be really exciting and fun and dorky, and Moment House is facilitating it, so with any luck, it's going to be super high-tech, too. It's just that I have to figure out the tech, but I have faith in my geriatric millennial self. We will be coming to you live not only from Athens, but from a rooftop with a view of the Acropolis. We will be nerding out with wine and stories of Athens' mythological founding. We will go on fun tangents and tell stories, and if you sign up with the Q&A portion afterwards, we will answer your burning questions about it all. If you can't make the true live stream at 12pm Eastern on September 12th, then you can still stream the moment for seven days after the fact, so there's lots of time for all possible time zones and schedules. Honestly, the more people that watch this one, the more likely I am to be able to do more of these and maybe consider real touring when it's safe again. So support me and the show by buying a ticket. 
They start at just $15 and patrons get a special code for 20% off. You can buy tickets to the show, the Q&A, and exclusive and very cool merch at momenthouse.com slash let's talk about myths, baby. That is momenthouse.com slash let's talk about myths, baby, or by clicking the link in this episode's description. By the time you hear next week's episode, I will be in Athens feeling very excited and grateful for my privilege and my vaccination. So thank you, nerds, for coming along for all of these rides with me. You're all the absolute utter best. Stay tuned while I'm away for the final episode on Iphigenia, the final readings of the Argonautica, and conversations with some incredibly cool people. Like Joe Goodkin, who is a modern Homeric bard, talking about Homer and songwriting and so much more. And Cora Beth Fraser, who has some incredible things to say about autism and the Minotaur and his labyrinth. And Danielle Rose of Tiger's Hearts, the all-women Shakespearean company who's just written a tragedy based on the Amazons. And Amy Pistone, a professor of Greek tragedy who worked her magic to convince me to give Sophocles a real chance. There's so much coming while I'm away. I hope you all enjoy it. It's been a thrill and a wild stressor to prepare for. (laughs) And hey, follow me on Instagram for lots of fun Grace content. Everything is at Myths Baby. Thank you all. I am Liv, and I love this shit. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, 
start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.